Well, I'd like to begin our time this morning by telling you about a man that I read a biography on just a few months ago. And so some of you may know this gentleman. His name is George Mueller. So usually he's known for his orphanages. He's known to be a man of prayer. But the greatest takeaway that I had from reading this guy's biography was how he loved, he nourished, he cherished his wife. And so actually in 1870, George Mueller's wife was gravely ill. In fact, one night, Mueller was told by one of the doctors in the room that Mary wouldn't make it more than a few days. So what does this loving husband do? Well, he goes into her bedroom where she's laying, and he goes before his dying bride, and he recites the promises of God to her. One night, Mueller's reading to her, and he reads Psalm 84. Just listen to this portion of the psalm. It says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. So as she, Mary, is going in and out of consciousness, Mueller continues to minister to his dying bride. Just listen to what he says to her as she's dying. He says, My darling, we have both received grace, and we shall therefore receive glory. And as by God's grace we walk uprightly, nothing that is good for us will he withhold from us. Nothing. Mary dies. Mary dies. But those promises that Mueller is sharing with his wife ring true. So with that this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. What drove George Mueller to love, nourish, cherish Mary? What drove him? I think it's clear that it was first and foremost awe and reverence for Christ that compelled him to sacrifice for the good of his bride. Now, why do I tell you this story this morning? It's because George Mueller displays what it looks like to love without restraint, nourishing and cherishing his wife to the very end. And this actually is a small window into the call that we have seen in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. You see, I have felt this tension for a, week, a few weeks now, which flows straight from Ephesians 5, 20 through 21. Just listen to this text. It says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so as I've seen and pondered this text, I've been asking myself one question. How does reverence for Christ compel the Christian to submit and honor one another as seen right in those words, right in chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians? And I think that what we're going to soon find out as we look in 1 John this morning is that we are first and foremost responders to God. And we love God and others only because he first loved us. 
So those who are part of the covenant community walk in radical obedience to Jesus as they live life in close proximity to those around them, in the home, in the church, honoring and submitting to one another. For to know God is to love God, is to obey God. So the Father's initiating love through the gospel compels us, his church, to joyfully respond in love to God and for all within the body of Christ as we are being perfected in love day by day until Christ returns. And so with that said this morning, I would love for you to turn with me to 1 John as we take a short break from the book of Ephesians and we're just going to be cementing the significance of what we've been seeing in this wonderful book of Ephesians. So we've seen in Ephesians 4 through 6 the practical nature of our Christian life. But this morning, I'd like us to see what Ephesians 5 through 6 is saying in a different vantage point, kind of turning the diamond on another perspective from the New Testament. I mean, how awesome it's going to be here. We're going to see it soon of the harmony of the biblical authors. They're saying very similar things. It's very sweet to see. And so if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you, you can find our passage on page 1023. And while you're turning there, feel free to look at your outlines. And you're going to notice that we have three main points this morning. One, love is initiated by God. Two, love compels God's people. And three, love is perfected in God's people. So with that, let's read in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now first, we must be clear here with the context of this section within John's first epistle. Just listen to John's theme for the entire letter from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John's quite clear. His aim is to give the believer assurance that those whom God has saved to the uttermost will make it all the way home to heaven. That's what he's trying to teach these people and us this morning. And so John actually unpacks ways in which you can test the fruit of your life and be sure that you have been truly redeemed. It's assurance for the Christian. So when we get to 1 John chapter 4, as we're going to see this morning, the reality that those who have been purchased by God, they truly love those within the covenant community. Love is an outworking of their lives. So with that in mind this morning, we're going to see our first point. Love is initiated by God. Look with me at verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Now notice how John begins this section. Beloved. So we see a very intimate title for those that he's written this letter to. John's being specific. He's genuine in his charge to these people. Beloved. He's actually practicing what he's preaching. He's saying that he loves the brothers and then goes on to charge them to love one another. He's exemplifying the command that he's giving to them. It's to love. So what's the charge? It's a command to love, right? He says, let us love one another. So when John commands to love one another, who does he have in mind? Who's his audience? Well, it's those who are in the church. He isn't referencing the mysterious man on the street corner in downtown Chicago. No, it's specific. He's, he's referring to the local body of Christ. It's clear in his delivery all throughout this portion of the text, 7 through 12. He uses the phrase, in or among us, in verses 9 and 12, right? Which is just doubling down. He's hammering on the fact that it's among the church that he's speaking of. We are to love one another in and amongst the body of Christ. Now, this isn't some new command to love, right? That's an old command that's been uh, seen throughout the entire course of the Bible. But why is this repeated? Well, because God gave us this command not only for his honor and glory, it's most certainly and primarily all about his glory, but it's so that we, his church, could be tested by the command and proven faithful to it. So it's an outworking of our hearts that have been radically transformed, radically changed by God. So this command for us that we see in verse 7 is good. It's a good command for his people. So just listen to all the different times in which John makes this claim throughout the book of 1 John about loving one another, right? In chapter 2, Verse 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So loving one another in the body of Christ within the context of the local church is a command for God's people. It's a command for us. But so when we see here in chapter 4, 7 through 12, the audience is given another set of reasons why they are to love. He's going to give two. And it's two major points that John is attempting to make all have to do with the source of love and the labor of love. So let's just look and see what this source of love is. So the command given here in the first part of verse 7 is clear, right? Let us love one another. But what's the ground? Why is he saying this? What is the because? What's the basis for commanding that these Christians love one another? What's the basis for commanding that we love one another? Here it is. Look back at verse 7 with me. Look what he says. For or because love is from God. I mean, look how simple and yet profound that is. Love is from God. This is the source of all love. It's God himself. 
But what does John mean when he says that love is from God? Well, it means that God, in and of himself, in all his splendor, majesty, and glory, shines forth love. It's the nature of who he is. One author says it like, it's like heat and fire. It's like light and sun. It's completely interwoven into the fabric and nature of who God is. I mean, if, if anybody, especially these readers, happen to have missed the point of what John is saying here, he backs it up in verse 8. Right? The statement's made once again in the following verse, just in a different way, kind of a nuanced direction. Verse 8, God is love. So in this one little section, we have a massive theological category that we can thank John and the good Lord for here, right? This is a good thing. But this just goes completely beyond an attribute or a sociological debate of nature versus nurture. No, this goes to the very root of idea that displays the very nature of who God is and how he works. We get to see God on display here. This morning. Now notice how this truth about the nature of God is utilized then in verses 7 and 8. John just continues to drive home his point for the believers, all based on the command to love. It says, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, do you see the logic? that John is communicating here? It's wonderful to see. He's contrasting the one who has been born of God and the one who does not know God. And so what's the distinction between these two very different people? Well, the one who loves is from God, but the one who doesn't, doesn't actually know God. They don't know him. They don't trust him. Why? Because those that love are those who have truly tasted the beauty of God. That they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Dr. Holtzman, a New Testament scholar, once wrote of the lovelessness that is attributed to those who do not know God truly. He says, lovelessness is godlessness. It improves inability to grasp and understand God. Lovelessness is godlessness. That's quite the claim. So those that truly know and have tasted the sweetness of the Lord loves others as God is love. I mean, just think about it. Knowing God always results in an outward expression of love towards others, like God, by his very nature, loves it's clear. It's like, Disney, it's like the Disney movie. I don't know if you may have seen this before. Peter Pan. It's like Peter Pan. And in one of those early scenes in the movie, you may have remembered it, Peter's in the middle of Wendy's bedroom, and he's searching all over the room for a shadow. He's trying to grab the shadow and reel it in and all that, and he finally grabs the shadow, and he starts sewing the shadow back to his person. He starts sewing him back together. There's perfect unity with the shadow and with Peter Pan. The shadow's in step with Pan. 
It can only follow suit. The shadow mirrors the exact imprint, design, and shape of Peter Pan himself. And so in the same way, those who have truly been born of God mirror the nature of who God is. That's what John's getting at in verses 7 and 8. But to further this even more so, look at the connection that we can make here easily from Ephesians chapter 5. Just think back to verses 1 and 2. Paul uses the exact same type of language to, to the same concept we're talking about and unpacking this morning. He writes in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2 of uh, Ephesians 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in what? Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So those who have been born of God imitate God as good, faithful, obedient, loving children do. So we actually mirror the way that mirror God in the way that we love one another. But notice through all of this that we are merely imitators. We're responders. God is the initiator. He's the actor in this case. But what about you? What would you say that your life reflects? Would you say that it reflects a heart of love toward one another in this church? Or better yet, who is it that you mirror in your interactions that you have with those in this very congregation? Do you follow the mirage of love that the world just slops on anything around here? Or do you follow in the steps of the very nature of our God? So we're commanded to love one another because love is from God. But how is it possible? How can we even imagine how Christians can mirror the love of God? How can broken, beaten, battered people know and mirror the love of God? How is God's love known among sinful people? Well, because it's been experienced. It's been experienced, that's why. And that's how we are led into our next point here, the labor of love. This is love that has been demonstrated toward us. Let's read verses 9 and 10 together. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What awesome words. (laughs) If we don't get anything else out of this this morning, how glorious are those words for the Christian this morning? I love God's word. That is so sweet for us. Just look here. How John unpacks this labor of love. In this, the love of God was made manifest or revealed. So how was God's love revealed, manifest to his people? Well, in the way that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, this may seem strange to some of us this morning, but why did God have to come into this world? Why did God send his only son that we might live through him? Why would God do that? 
What's the issue? It's sin. Sin is the problem. We have a great fundamental sin issue due to the sin of our forefather, Adam. We're all corrupt. And the Bible is abundantly clear on this matter, right? Our deeds were as good as filthy rags. We hated God. We loved what he created rather than God, the creator and sustainer of the universe himself. We were an enemy rather than a friend of God. We mocked God. We were hostile to God. But look how God settles the problem. He poured out the greatest display of love in the history of humanity. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world that we may not die entirely separated from God for all of eternity. What does he do? He saves that which was lost. He comes and saves, dies for his bride. Now, in this section, John has just hovered in verse 9 over the nitty-gritty details of the love of God that was made manifest, right? But in verse 10, he then unpacks the means by which he might live, we might live through him. He unpacks this love. So how is it possible to have life through Jesus, right? How is it that we might live through him? Well, here it is, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I want us to just notice a few things from the text as we're working through verse 10 here. Notice that within this labor of love, God is the great initiator of the relationship. Do you see that? It's not us. So in this relationship, we're all just a bunch of responders to our great God and King. We couldn't and wouldn't have ever loved God without God first loving us. Right? The Bible's clear. I'm not just up here saying a bunch of stuff just because I feel it. No, look at the text. Look at Paul. Romans 8, chapter 7. Paul writes this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. Why not? Indeed, it cannot. Do you hear that? Sinful man, sinful humanity can't submit to God's law in the flesh. We were dead. Just to be clear, dead men don't initiate things. No, dead men are dead for a reason. We needed an initiator. And Paul says we were hostile to God. We couldn't submit to God's law, even if we tried. We couldn't, and we wouldn't. God had to initiate, and so he did. And how did he display this love to his people? How did he initiate with the most unworthy, unlovable, despicable people on the face of the earth, all of creation because of our wickedness before a holy and righteous God? How does he initiate? Look at verse 10. 10b, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that mean? Right? I'm, I'm okay with the whole, he came down, right? He sent his son. I think I got that, right? He came, okay, but what does it mean for Jesus to come 
He's sent to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, that's got a lot of syllables. That's hard to understand. What does that mean? Well, Kevin DeYoung defines propitiation in such a, just a helpful way. Listen to what he says. The appeasing, propitiation, is the appeasing of God's wrath. The easiest way to remember the term is that in propitiation, God is made pro-us. So death not only removed the moral stain of sin, it also removed the personal offense of sin. So according to John here, Jesus was sent to be the appeasement or the satisfier of God's wrath for our sin. Now let's not miss this little word that we find here in verse 10. It's a good one. For our sin. Do you see that? Jesus was sent to satisfy the wrath of God in our place for our sin. Personal, specific sin. Past, present, and future, ladies and gentlemen. Every sin was laid on Jesus. Every sin that deserved God's judgment poured out, not on you. It was poured out on the God-man. It was poured out on Jesus. It's as if you and I were standing a couple hundred yards away from a dam of water. And that dam of water, 10,000 miles high. 10,000 miles wide. And it's just billowing under the lip of the dam, ready to give way. And all of a sudden, that dam cracks. And a massive flood of water comes rushing toward us. Just think of it. Picture yourself standing before the mass, this thunderous mass of water, ready to pour and consume every bit of you. Thousands of gallons of water pouring at a thunderous pace every second. And right before it reached our feet, the ground in front of us opened up. And the ground swallows every bit of the water. Every drop. Rather than destroying you and I where we stood. Vanished before our eyes. I mean, clothes dry, no sign of water, thousands upon thousands of gallons gone, never to be seen again. Waters absorbed forever. That's the beauty of propitiation. That's exactly what Jesus did. He absorbed the full wrath of God in your stead. Right, Every drop declared you and I guilty. Drops which you completely deserve. Drops which I completely deserve. And God the Father poured it all out on his beloved Son. Never to be judged again. I want to be clear, brothers and sisters. This is love. That's what love truly is. And it's good for us to see it and know. I mean, what other God that you can imagine, 
that you can think of, that you can see in history books? What other God acts like this? Here's the answer. There is no other God that's like Yahweh. There's no other God that matches him in all his grandeur and glory. And this is the God of the Bible. This is the true God. And this God is worthy. So if you don't yet know and trust the Lord Jesus, you need to understand a few things this morning. This is the God that's offered to you. To know him, to believe him, to enjoy him for all of eternity, right? And you don't make any of the first moves. No, the reality is that this glorious king bids you to come, not because you're able, not because you're worthy of his love. No, you come because God calls. God calls. And so this day, right now, God is calling you to repent of your sin and turn and live for the Lord God, Jesus Christ, for all your days, to die to yourself and live for him. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself right now, well, what if I don't want to? What if I don't want to know the Lord Jesus? What if I don't want to treasure Christ with my entire life? What if I just want to do my own thing until I'm good and ready? When I have financial prowess that I've dreamed up since I was six, when I have that nice car that goes 250 miles an hour, when I have the wife and the kids and everything, when I move into the big city, or when I move into the country and sit up on the mountaintops and have green tea all day. You're welcome to do it. But I appeal to you that life of rejection ends in destruction. And it's terrifying. God is not a hiding place for your wicked soul. God does not tolerate sin. God's judgment will come and he, his judgment will be satisfied because of your hardness of heart. So I beg you this morning to trust and treasure Jesus, the one who came to this earth to satisfy the wrath of God in the place of sinful men. Embrace Christ. Trust him. The one who absorbed God's judgment and carries you into endless joy forevermore. That's the God of the Bible. So love has been initiated by God through the gospel. But that love has worked itself out in and through the death of Christ, which then compels his people to love like God has loved us. Bringing us to our second point this morning. Love compels God's people. Now, as we read in verse 11 in a second here, we're going to see an if-then statement, which is just going to drive continually John's point here, right? So the if is a true reality. God loved us. And here comes the then. This is our response. We ought to love one another. So we love one another. Look at verse 11 with me. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So in this verse, it's almost as though John has placed all his cards down on the table, right? Here they are. Here's the good news of Jesus' death. And then he follows it up with what we've already seen in verse 7, right? But notice the word if here, right? 
if God, right? But this if is not showing a position of uncertainty of God's love, right? It's not, oh, well, if God had love, like if he did actually do that. No, that's not what he's getting at. That would be foolish because he's already argued his point here clearly. It's been shown that God has loved his people because he is love and because he revealed this love for his bride by sending his son to die in the place of sinful men. So if it is true that God so loved those that he came to save, which it actually and truly and wonderfully is, then we ought to also love one another. It's actually a natural reflex of the spirit-filled, transformed believer. So the motivation behind our love for one another starts with God and the gospel. It can't start anywhere else, brothers and sisters. We don't get over the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We don't preach the gospel some weeks and then other weeks we just let it drop to the wayside, right? No, we don't move on to greater degrees of theology. The gospel is the heartbeat of the Christian's love and obedience. We love the gospel. And so in light of such a great salvation, as we're changed, we, as we recall the gospel to our minds, we then love, we then obey, we then respect and honor our parents. We rightly respond to our God. And so what about you? If a person walked right now, right, just walked down the street as you were going by, what would be your reason for loving and caring for others as you do? If they asked you, why do you love people? Why do you care? Why do you have compassion for others? What would you say? What drives you this morning? What motivates your life? Is it for the appearance of godliness? To seem like you're up to snuff? Is it to look good in front of other people? Or do you love others because you're absolutely undone by who God is and what he's done for you in and through the death and resurrection of Christ. I pray that the gospel would be the anchor of our hearts that would stir us for love and good deeds for one another. I pray that we would say, I forgive. Why? Because Christ forgave me. I sacrifice. Why? Because Christ sacrificed himself in my place. I have joy. Why? Because for the joy set before him, he endured the condemnation that I most certainly deserve. I love. Why? Because Christ first loved me in his living, in his suffering. It's for the church's good and for the glory of Christ's name. That's the response. So notice that this response is recalling the love of God in the gospel. Just look again with me. We ought to love one another. Do you hear the repetition? It's pretty clear. We've already heard this type of command, right? Just look back to verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. He's saying, the, in essence, the exact same thing. So the command to love, as we see in this one verse, is the then or the result of God's first act of loving us by sending and sacrificing his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. You see it? We're not the initiator. We're responders to God's love. That response looks like something. So because God's love for us is certain, it's also certain 
according to John, that the one whom God loves will respond rightly in loving the other people of God. You'll do it. You will honor, respect, love those in your church and your homes. Sound familiar? Ephesians 5 and 6. It includes your wife. It includes your husband, your kids, your brother, your sister, your co-workers. And of course, those who you're sitting with right now. The rest of the body of Christ. But I want us to notice something this morning. This response to God's love through love for others, it's active. This isn't a passive pursuit. This isn't a sit on the couch and just think a couple of nice thoughts for a moment. No, it's active, engaged heart work. So I'd like to encourage all of us to actively pursue love for one another, right? Maybe even taking some time as a family, opening up the church directory and have a game plan. Start thinking through questions as you look at faces on these pages, right? Ask questions with your family to stir opportunity. Questions like, what are some of the ways that this particular family is struggling right now? Right? What would be the most helpful way for our family to serve these people? How can we love these people this week in this specific way? And then act. Act. Now, I must add here that love does not need to look like food or babysitting, although we do all those really well, right? We do a great job with that. But it could be simply praying. It could be a text to encourage. It could be a quick conversation. But whatever it may be, I'd like us to be encouraged to pursue this. To not be passive, but be active. Remembering the call and command by God himself. He's been clear in his word. Why do we do this? Why are we even encouraged to love and nourish the body regularly here? I think two reasons, and they're clear in the text this morning. One, because God has commanded us to do it. And so if we don't do what God has commanded, we are actually sinning against our Lord. It's weighty. It's real. But secondly, as we've seen this morning, we also do this because Christ first loved us. And so we're the greatest hypocrites on the planet. If we wholly embrace God's love toward us, propitiation, love the word, right? But if we just think and embrace it, without being people who are transformed and compelled to love one another, we are hypocrites. We're hearers but not doers. Which brings us to the assurance that the people of God can truly experience through the transforming love that they pursue. Love is perfected in God's people. So A, the proof love supplies. Look with me at verse 12. It says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, the beginning of this verse is a bit of a mind bender, right? It seems completely random. It seems just kind of thrown right in the middle of the sentence. What's the point of stating that no one has ever seen God here? Well, it places God once again in the right and necessary position of greatest importance. No one has ever seen God. That's true. But just listen to John 1.18. Same author, 
Similar words. Listen to what he says. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So there are points in time, right, that we've seen. I'm sure you've read of them in the Old Testament, where it seems as though God has been seen at a glance. But no one has fully seen God up close and personal in all of his splendor and all of his glory. So here's John's point. By loving others, the people of God can rest assured that the invisible, immortal God over all actually abides amongst his people. Now don't miss it, right? John is quite clear here. Love for one another is the proof that God actually abides in us. Howard Marshall, a New Testament scholar, writes, when we love others, God's love for us has reached its full effect in creating the same kind of love as his in us. So love for one another places on full display the fact that we have actually been transformed, completely changed by God, and then he dwells in us because we mirror that which God is. Love. And so, in so doing, we reflect the greatest display of God's love, which is found where? The gospel. In the death and resurrection of Christ, the work that took place on the cross. It's like my grandmother's baking. There are these little Italian cookies that my grandmother has made for years. My goodness, they got this like little frosting on them. They're delicious. And and so who's the only one I allow to make those types of cookies other than my grandmother? My own mom. Why? Because my mom's attempt at those Italian cookies mirror the very taste, texture, smell, and all of the above of the ones that my grandmother has made all of my life. So the original stands the test of time. But the second generation cookie wonderfully resembles the beauty, taste, and texture of the original. So in the same way, we see the love of God and how it is poured out Amongst his people. The love that the people of God have for one another should gloriously resemble the the love the the Lord has for us. Why? Because we have been born anew by him. Right? Therefore, he truly dwells among us. Right now. Working. Continuously. You see, God has not been seen by man, as we have heard from First John. But he has revealed, he has made himself manifest in love, demonstrated through Christ's sacrificial death, and in the same way that we see that love manifested through Christ's work on the cross, God is made manifest by our love for one another. That's how the world sees on display the grandeur and glory of our king. God is love, displayed, manifest in his people who love. So not only does our love for one another supply assurance that God abides within us, but there's the fruit of love which is perfected in us. So verse 12b, 
very short. His love is perfected in us. Now, there are two significant questions that I think we need to understand in this small portion of our text this morning. And they're this. Number one, whose love is being referenced here? Two, what does perfected actually mean? So number one, let's look at that first. The word, whose love is referenced here? Well, the word his here is is directly connected to the previous phrase, right? Just earlier in verse 12, God abides in us. So his love is connected to God, the one who abides in his people. So it's God's love that is perfected in us, and it's directly related to God's abiding in and among his people. So love is made manifest in the church because God, who is love, dwells, tabernacles, abides in the one who has been made new in Christ. But what about the second question? What does John mean by perfected in us? Well, it for sure doesn't mean that perfection of perfection in the sense that we can and never will sin, right? I think I have... Uh, seen it very clearly in my own life that I don't really do the whole perfection thing well. (laughs) I'm a sinner, right? So perfect isn't really a category for me. Not right now, at least. No, John isn't talking about perfected people in the here and now. But God's John's talking about God's already pristine love finding its fullest possible expression in us as we respond to the message of the gospel and then go as we ought and love one another in the church and in our homes. F.F. Bruce has a quote, and he says, The love of God displayed in his people is the strongest apologetic, the strongest defense that God has in all the world. When his love is planted in our hearts and he himself thus dwells in them, his love is perfected in the response which it finds in them towards him and towards other believers. So love for one another is a right and in fact the only true response of all who have been called by his name. And that love has been perfected And it truly will be perfected until Christ returns. But with that, I've just been wrestling with that reality. And so listen to some of the questions that I ask myself, and I think we need to do the same. How does this all connect with Ephesians chapter 5 and 6? Right? We've been in this book for a while. How does this have anything to do with responding to the Lord Jesus in reverence as we honor and submit to our others within our circles of influence? How does that work with this whole submission, love, honoring idea in the church and in our homes? Well, we must understand that we will never and can never love one another without a heart that is completely overwhelmed by God. We can. No transformed person can go without love. So this heart that's overwhelmed heart that's overflowing with love and reverence for Jesus, as we've seen in Ephesians 5.21, goes forth, streams forth, and loves others. We joyfully submit to those in our homes and in our churches. We joyfully obey to our, our parents. We joyfully honor our husbands and cherish and nourish our wives. It's the active outflow 
from a heart that is overwhelmed by God and the gospel. But catch the beauty of verse 12. His love is being perfected in us. So God's doing this work. And he's not done yet. And he continues to transform even the way in which we love one another. So God's molding, shaping us into greater lovers, greater mirrors of love that he so fully displays. So there's work to be done. We're not perfect image bearers. We're not perfect lovers of people. We're not perfect lovers of God. But man, we must love one another in light of who God is and what he has done. So let me ask you, if you were to assess your life in terms of love for one another in this church, where is there a lack of love for one another? Where are you lacking? Where am I lacking? Or to get a bit deeper, who do you actually struggle to love in this church? Is there someone in this church who's maybe older than you that you just struggle with loving those people? Maybe someone younger than you. Maybe the one that you think talks too much. Maybe the one who you think stands too close without a mask on. Maybe it's when those conversations just get a little bit too awkward way too quickly. But I'd encourage you. I'd encourage us all to begin to uproot that display of love that lacks. I'd encourage us to weed out lovelessness in our lives. But how do we do this? How can we actually uproot sin of lovelessness in our lives, even today? I encourage us to look back at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Just remember, remember, dear believer, I've been pondering this thought all week. There was nothing worth loving in me. There was nothing worthy of love in us. We were enemies of the cross of Christ. We actively pursued everything else on the planet but God. We treasured other stuff instead of God. We longed for death rather than life. And then Christ came. Bore the wrath that you deserved. And rose from the dead to bring about victory and peace. That you would reign with God most high for all your days. I mean, maybe you're on the other side of the equation. Maybe you'd say that you're willing and happy to love any and all in the church, right? Oh, I love everybody. I love to do that. But you know what? It's, we do too good of a job here at Proclamation. We love people too well, so I don't have an opportunity to love other people. There's, everybody's already doing it, so I'm just going to sit back. Well, I would encourage you to change your orientation. Just listen to Jonathan Edwards here. He has a wonderful quote about this very idea. Edwards says, Do not make an excuse that you have not opportunities to do anything for the glory of God, specifically for the spiritual benefit of your neighbors. If your heart is full of love, it will vent. You will find or make ways enough to express your love and deeds. When a fountain abounds in water, 
it will send forth streams. It will send forth streams. So here's what I'd encourage us to do. Find or make ways enough to express your love in deeds for one another. If God who is love abides in you, then love will flow like springs of water from every single pore of our being. So how does that actually take place? Contemplate the glories of the gospel day in and day out and spare not in loving one another well. So it's a proper response. It's out of a proper response to God's love to us that we will truly have a passion and deep joy for other believers. And that's exactly what we saw in the life of George Mueller. He nourished and cherished his dear wife, Mary, just as Ephesians 5 commanded him. Yes, for sure, because he loved his wife. That's a given. But even more so, he loved Jesus. Right In every tear that fell, in every prayer that he prayed, in every way in which he preached the gospel to his dying wife, it all stemmed from a heart that overflowed with a greater love and reverence for the Lord Jesus. The one who loved Mueller and gave himself up for him. So in the same way, that Christ came died, and rose for us. So we're called. We're called to love. May God give us the grace to be a people who are overwhelmed by the glory of the gospel and are then compelled to joyfully respond in love to one another until we find our greatest love in the beloved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus. God, we're thankful that you sent forth your Son to live a sinless life, to die the death that we fully deserved, and then you rose the Son from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the devil. God, we pray that we would be a people that are uh, just in love with you, that we have a heart that beats for God alone, that we delight in the Lord Jesus, and we are compelled then to, to love others, both in this church and in our home. So we pray that you would give us the grace to do this. As we stumble and fall, we pray that we would ask quickly for repentance, that we would love you, we would love others, and we'd be conformed into the image of your good and perfect Son. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.